You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Knife here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1989 Charles Band Full Moon Production Puppet Master. I thought you were going to say classic. Classic! Because I was holding out for it. It kind of is a classic now, given its age, given Mm -hmm. its provenance, given the fact that eventually he's going to make a 3D version of it. Mm -hmm. That makes it a classic instantly. Puppet Master... Dolls, lunchboxes, t-shirts, anything that you could possibly want. I just want, like, you know those great big Mardi Gras carnival masks? I want one of those of Blade. Oh, really? Yeah, I would walk around like that. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. About the right height. Yeah. (laughs) You would be. Comic books. Yeah. Action Lab, Danger Zone. You can get all the Puppet Master comic books that you want. They're fucking cool, too. That would be fucking cool. Yeah. Fuck, maybe I should do that for panels of blood one day you should that would be super fun yeah 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 i like more i like more tie-ins you may have like i'm not gonna say because it's all just in planning now but there might be another tie-in to another movie that we covered coming up on panels of blood which is awesome totally awesome if only there was really an afterlife with archie film you know what i don't doubt that we could get there someday yeah 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 or at least with hints but i don't know how many horror references they do because that comic book is chock-a-block full of them but anyway we're not here to talk about archie we're here to talk about puppet master and i can't remember is this a me pick or a you pick this is a me pick but on behalf of you (laughs) because i know that these are near and dear to your heart and i know that you have watched all of them where i have not like Mm -hmm. i'm a total almost a total puppet master virgin because me and a friend had rented it ages and ages and ages and ages ago Mm -hmm. like quite literally probably two or three years after it came out Mm -hmm. and i remember the beginning and i fell asleep i must have fallen asleep because i remember the hat pin trick and that's really all that i remembered Mm -hmm. and i went to watch it again about two or three years ago uh about two years ago and i fell asleep again somewhere after the hat pin trick so yeah if you guys are interested in a review of a lot of Charles Band's work, I did uh, a tribute to Charles Band on spottedpictures.net. It was one of the first things that I ever did for the website, and I covered a lot of his films, Ghoulies and Dolls, and and of course, Puppet Master. I've been a big fan of Charles Band and his little cottage industry of horror that they've created. Not all of it's to my taste, but certainly when they're in the realm of little puppets demonic toys and dolls and doll graveyard underrated but uh rarely spoken about but it's also quite good these films really are special to me personally speaking when i was a kid going back to the video store i know we talk about video stores a lot we lived in them that's why that's true the thing about seeing the movies splayed out the way they were you know movies weren't kept like books with the spines out They were kept face out so you could see the covers. And the things that would draw your eye the most 
were what? They were horror franchises with lots of sequels. You couldn't walk past Nightmare on Elm Street without looking at it because you would see Freddy six fucking times in a row all next to each other. Same thing with the Puppet Masters. And much like the covers of a lot of movies, these told a story of progression. You would look at the Puppet Master 1 poster on the box or the box art and you would see some puppets and then in the next one you'd see different puppets along with some of our classics so you would always see Blade and Pinhead and Tunnler but then oh who's who's this guy with the helmet and the 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 torch hand what's that guy all about and then you see the poster for the third one here's all our favorite puppets look at them all oh but who's this cowboy with the six arms there's a new one and so you knew as the movies were progressing, whatever these puppets, whatever this movie was about was almost irrelevant, but you knew that there was new puppets every single time. I like that. Whatever this movie was about was almost irrelevant. Uh, it's a, And it's a treat that there is a relevant story and a thread of a story throughout all of this that is mm-hmm. quite compelling. Um, even if the quality lags or if they uh, retcon here and there. Yeah, yeah. And like even aside from all of that, it does keep you watching definitely from the get-go and if your first introduction to this is of course Puppet Master 1 as it should be the opening sequence sells you you had told me something about being younger and watching this and waiting for them to get to the puppets and when it sort of slows down and gets into the human element and character building of the characters that we're meeting in this that aren't puppets Mm -hmm. you were Basically chanting puppets, puppets. Puppets, puppets, where my puppets? Yeah, where are my puppets at? And, and and even when you would try to show this movie to friends, you would have to say, oh, don't worry, the, there's puppets. I'd almost feel like I have to apologize every time there was a human on the screen. <laughs> and rightfully so, because the puppets are <laughs> fucking awesome. And there is definitely a story progression being told on these covers. And it is extremely compelling mm-hmm. to a young horror mind or somebody who's older that is just like, oh, the puppets are creepy. Puppets and clowns freak people out. I'm not, I'm completely immune to this. I love creepy dolls. I had a creepy marionette. I love creepy clowns, creepy dolls. I love that. I barely understand how people can be afraid of them, but people are. So maybe that played into how so many people hadn't seen it. This was really a video darling too, because there was nowhere else to see this but the rental store. Yeah, yeah. It really was one of those films that grabbed your attention. And it got to the point where it was like Ghoulies, another Charles Band film. You you would just look at the damn cover every time you walked in there, and then you just say to yourself, "Well, I got to see why these puppets are coming out of the fucking toilet." Yeah, no, yeah, you, you see the cover of Ghoulies for forever, and all you want to do is rent the fucking hell out of that. And finally, when you do, it's like when you see him after, you're like, "I, I know that guy." I yeah, know you. yeah. <laughs> Thumbs up, Ghoulies cover. Yeah, exactly. And with Puppet Master, there were so many. By the time I was even aware of them, right? Because by the time I was the age of eight, nine, ten years old, there was already four or five of these movies out already. And they just kept, the covers kept looking cooler and cooler. By the time they're at four, those crazy alien mutant looking puppets are on the fucking box and you just thinking oh my god what's this this is what deterred me entirely because i was watching these movies come out i guess till four or five was when i stopped really noticing them and also the demise of video stores was starting to happen around that time Mm -hmm. and i felt like it was too much of an investment yeah yeah i get like that sometimes too with 
video games that I know are very long or have a, a big franchise. Or, or, or someone says, why don't you watch, I don't know, Doctor Who or, or Stargate? Oh and, my God. Yeah. And, and that's I'm, what it felt like to me too. And I was just, I, and I just say to myself, I just, I don't, I don't, I just can't. I just don't, there's too much of it. And Stargate's so, a lot easier to get into because if you watch the movie, you'll know whether you want to get into that or not. Yeah, true. Yeah. But with this, yeah, that definitely is a lot more like Doctor Who. Yeah. That's a really good analogy because it seemed like too much of an investment. It seemed like. Going back to the beginning, you're thinking like, okay, I'm really attracted to this cover of part five, and that's what I want to watch, but can I start there? Yeah. 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 I'm sure people have the same reaction to the Hellraisers, or even Friday the 13th. Yeah. Be, especially when you're wondering, which ones are the good ones? Is Or will I be lost if I pick up right here? Yeah. Right, 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 right. And, and almost asking people to, even though people fucking binge watch 15 hours of TV in a day, asking them to watch three movies in a row, that for some reason that becomes this daunting task for people. Meanwhile, everyone is sitting down watching Defenders for 10 hours straight or whatever ridiculous thing it is right now. Which is actually really depressing to me. <laughs> really depressing <laughs> considering these uh, gems of franchises that do have multiple parts or remakes watching all the psychos mm-hmm. remakes included that's that's a sit that's two days of work really when you yeah. think about it but it was so much more worth it than watching whatever's the hot new superhero show on netflix right and so sitting down and watching puppet mash for the first time i don't know what i was expecting i was expecting puppets oh yeah easily but when i finally sat down and watched it i thought to myself huh I just did, I really had no idea what the story was going to be, but whatever my expectations were, it, it was still oh that wasn't what I thought it was going to be about. You might have been expecting more of a puppet master as opposed to just puppets. It's um, true because that would be even though I went into it knowing a lot of what I was getting into, and with a lot of Charles Band work, as soon as you see that sort of like soap opera tint to the film. In yeah, a way, and the way yeah. that his lighting and his settings are, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm watching a child's band movie, so I sort of know what to expect from that. But as far as the title and the fact that there's puppets, how could that go? Like, we've seen Child's Play. That mm-hmm. was a very convoluted, really, a very convoluted story for such a basic premise of a kid has a possessed toy. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't know what to expect from the cover of Child's Play. It's got a demonic-looking doll on it. It's brandishing a weapon, like... What could you expect from that? You can't possibly write that script in your head and have it be accurate. This even more so, especially because all the puppets aren't just, you know, secondary things. They are the characters. The puppet master himself, of course, as we'll get into, is really a Mm -hmm, mm non-player. So, yeah, he might have gone into it expecting like this guy controlling puppets and having it all be about the guy. Mm -hmm, It's not about mm -hmm. the guy at all. No, not really. No. But it became something that I really like. Now, as an adult, as a storyteller, I love the idea of an individual's legacy looming so large that decades ago did something and nobody knows exactly how he did it. And so what they want is this thing. What are the puppets? What is this formula? How does he do it? And in the, in the sequels, it goes far more in depth. About, soon we'll have ten movies to explain. Yeah, them. how how they did it, and a lot of them will be in the past. Half of them seem to be in the past at this point. 
More than. And that to me is incredibly fascinating. I Because I, I guess once you start incorporating elements of World War II, which I really like, and Nazi Gestapos chasing people, and the spies and conspiracies. And the Nazi sex magic or whatever the hell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Thule Society, that kind of yeah. Weird there's been shit. so much um, A and E documentaries on the occult Nazism that it it's like an evergreen interest factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it really is. So and to have that many movies where we have something like the Belasco process in Hell House, that's a one-off movie. It's so self-contained, and at the end we get a neat little Scooby-Doo wrap-up. <laughs> really, and yeah. in this, no, we get. 10 fucking movies of Scooby-Doo. Yeah, just really expanding the lore, not just in people trying to... It's not just taking place in the modern times. It would be so easy to say, to do this, a story in which, oh, it's modern times, and someone nowadays has figured out how to imbue these dolls with what is essentially life then you don't get a library scene you don't get a, exactly. a sequel called bloodlines is there a sequel called bloodlines that's what they need is one called bloodlines no it's i don't know like that la marchand box thing yeah <laughs> i think i think that um they've avoided the bloodlines title in puppet master they got a toulon's revenge they got that yeah that's close cool. enough close enough but i i suppose um what this it, it instantly just makes it so much richer and it gave me something that I didn't know that I wanted and even though when I was a kid I just wanted to see the puppets kill people and that's really what I wanted to see I, I would look at the cover man this blade guy looks like a fucking badass I want to see him do stuff and sure enough you get to see him do stuff and then as an adult you can go back and you can say wow I really like how rich a tapestry this story is and all they did was instead of making it a modern alchemist that did this just said it during world war ii and now yeah. it's people catching up to what this guy done and i love that that attitude of lost knowledge this and and somehow toulon did this and they don't bother to explain how he fucking did it not unlike chronos yeah exactly mm -hmm. exactly chasing after the chronos device how long it went through history, who was after it and for why. Those questions aren't even answered in this. They're hinted at. Yeah. Which is, yeah, giving you something you didn't know you wanted. Mm -hmm. A very rich tapestry, which is, sounds kind of hilarious when we're talking about Puppet Master. Yeah, but I think that it, it would be so easy to look at the box art for some of these things and thinking, oh, this is such a cheesy movie. And in ways it is, but... Or it, boil it down right to its very base, base elements and approach it like a insert movie, turn off brain sort of mentality when you're watching this. And it gives you something you didn't know you wanted. Yeah, Leech Girl. You know, that's <laughs> really what I, that my takeaway, my grand takeaway, if you're watching this on a very surface level. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember just loving this film. And, and it really grew on me. It was one of those things where I watched it and I was like, yeah, I like that. It wasn't one of those expecting, but I did like it. And then it stuck with me. And then I decided that I really liked the movie and I really wanted other people to see it. And I really wanted to watch the sequels. And particularly, I, I, I put it down for such a long time. And then when I was writing that article for Splatter Pictures, when I was finally getting back into the, the world of the miniature puppets that charles band and a full moon in general just likes to make mm. i really found out that 
oh man, I just got this this wave of nostalgia and loving everything from the way that the puppets looked to the stories to the music. I fucking love the Puppet Master theme song. I used to listen to it on a loop, just on a fucking loop. Which is crazy. And yeah, an actual high fives to Richard Band for the music in this. All of the music is really, mm-hmm. really well orchestrated and really well put together and fits extremely well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially that theme song. Yeah. It is quite iconic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's definitely uh, Full Moon films that people would like a little bit better. Dolls, is, I think, is a very solid movie. We were toying with the idea of doing demonic toys, no pun intended. Uh, Chris had suggested us doing Castle Freak, and I was really... Castle Freak. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting... I'm, I'm edging on that. I, I really am. Castle Freak, I would be totally down to do Castle Freak. And, and, and yeah, demonic toys would have been, a, a, like, not a bad idea, but, man, what I was like, man, if we're doing... Charles Band Puppets, yeah. let's do Puppet Master. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot to talk about with this film. Which leads me to my next question. What is this movie even about anyways, Lydia? It is a 1980s sitcom, rom-com, if you will, between Teresa and Dana. The odd couple of a super psychic white witch and a super tidy, neat-as-a-pin, little squeaky, tiny housekeeper. Yeah, that's basically this movie. Yeah, I could definitely watch them two interact forever. I really like the um, the, the angle of all the psychics in this. Now, what is this about? This is about uh, the tragic life and death of Andre Toulon and his creations that have been locked in a wall for, <laughs> what, 50 fucking years? At least, yeah. Yeah. And when they come out, it's party time. Oh, man, is it ever party time. When this film opens up, they give you a puppet action right away. We get to see lookout puppets. Genji. Genji is what we figure his name is because he's not named in it. And like Wes is my total fount of information here when it comes Mm -hmm. to Puppet Master sequels. Uh, he's not in any of the other sequels. This little Genghis Khan-looking fellow that's acting as lookout, looking out the window. Mm-hmm. And I guess he's watching his buddy Blade, who's on some sort of recon mission, mm-hmm. while the fucking Cold War Nazis come to storm the place. Mm-hmm. And he's on his way back to the hotel to warn Toulon, I guess, protect themselves as mm-hmm. best they can. Um, so Genji is watching Blade approach the hotel, as we are from Blade's point of view. Mm -hmm. And while all this is going on, Toulon is painting, putting the finishing touches on Jester, one of my favorite of the puppets. Jester is a a lot of people's favorite. I like his little face. Yeah, he's very cute. Yeah, he's he's very expressionate. And he would be the most recent puppet. He's the last one that Toulon built. Mm -hmm. Well, really. And is... Like the kid brother to all the puppets. That's how I take it anyway. Mm-hmm. I definitely see your point with that. And there is definitely this scene, this sense of protection that the other puppets have for him because he is the newest. I don't know. I always have this weird conspiratorial aspect of my brain that thinks Jester is secretly in charge. I don't know if it's because he might be the most intelligent or he doesn't really have a way to attack people, and so he has to rely on other means, and so he's really more of a mastermind-type puppet. And it always goes back to this idea of um, wisdom of the dark fool. It's it's wisdom hidden as a jester, so people ignore its intelligence and advice. 
but uh, so to not judge things on its appearance. But well, he's like always that. giving advice to the king. <clears throat> yeah, which many exactly. people would would say, "Oh, Blade is the undisputed leader." Yeah, Blade. Blade is pretty much the undisputed favorite puppet. First of all, he looks so cool. He does look super cool. He looks so cool, and I'm not even trying to going to try to front like I'm this big contrarian and. Everyone likes this puppet, and I don't. I fucking love Blade. Of course you do. I fucking love Blade. He looks like a little Gestapo. But you pay more attention to Jester than people have paid his due, because he isn't in every scene. He basically disappears, as you point out, by the end of this film. But he does have the most expression, Mm -hmm. really, and he does have the most interaction with Mm -hmm. humans, other than just killing them. He has a, a more sly interaction with humans Mm -hmm. yeah and in the sequel it's kind of the same idea the puppets will fucking turn on you if you fuck with jester so i'm really i'm really i'm gonna i take this theory over the hill man i really feel like jester is is a leader or but it also your theory of it's just he's the kid brother and the most vulnerable so people are protective or the puppets are protective of him or that he's also more works. imbued with toulon's soul yeah yeah so he is the embodiment of toulon and they're protecting their creator in that mm-hmm. but we are getting ahead of ourselves oh but, are we ever but when the the nazis show up and we know they're nazis because they're wearing their gestapo like big fedoras black trench coats they're speaking in German, and we know that uh, Toulon has fled Germany or, or occupied France. Occupied France, probably, because he is, does have a French name, and he is a, a puppeteer, which seems like a very uh, a more France Italy thing, very mm-hmm. Geppetto looking. And if yeah. they could have cast a Geppetto in a fucking Pinocchio film, it would have been this guy, yeah, William Hickey, who was in the Black Cat sequence. Yeah, he in the Black Cat. When we talked about it early, early in the, when we were Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah. And I, the second I saw this guy's face, I couldn't remember his name and I couldn't remember where I saw him from, but I knew that I recognized him. And it's of course it's from this. And even though Toulon played by that actor in this sequence is really only in the opening, mm-hmm. we we get to, to to enjoy his very sincere performance of how much he loves these puppets and we get to even with the opening sequence where we're looking at title treatments and that beautiful beautiful opening song which i love we're watching a puppet getting built and like and and it looks like tunneler to me with the face and all that kind of stuff and then when we're getting to the povs of blade and Jester's getting built, and uh, Genji is getting uh, is looking out, and the the Gestapo are coming through the hotel. It takes them a fucking minute to get through that big old place mm-hmm. because Toulon has enough time to finish painting Jester, imbue him with life, take all of the puppets, put them in the trunk, get the trunk into the wall, hide everything, put the chair back, sit down, and blow his brains out before they even get to the door. And during all of that time, we were treated to a whole bunch of Blade running through the building and spooking dogs and scaring old ladies yeah. <laughs> running across the piano like a Trixie cat. But you yeah. had pointed out, rightfully so, that not enough people see Blade when he's literally running across the hall with a lobby full of people. I wouldn't even want to do this horror experiment because it's not even warranted. If something runs, if something about a foot and a half high scurries under your feet, you fucking notice. If something about a foot and a half, a half high starts scaring a dog, people will notice. There's people milling about all around in the foyer, outside of this hotel, 
it probably in the fucking elevators, people in the hallways, there's people everywhere. And they don't see this foot and a half high marionette run across the piano keys mm-hmm. for crying out loud. <laughs> Let alone hiding not under their chair, beside their chair. I was trying I know, right? Right right by their feet. And I was trying to put myself in the position of, okay, I am not expecting to see anything down below my eye line, so I'm just going to walk straight. That's not how people's vision works. It's not like you can only see directly wherever your pupils are facing. We have peripheral vision. And not only that, but if you're walking through a... Stop doing that. Wait, are you (laughs) supposed to punch me or something like that? Yeah. You know that game? (laughs) I do know that game. That's a peripheral vision game. Yeah. What I did, folks, is made sort of like the okay symbol with a circle of your pointer finger and thumb. Yeah. Right? You take your forefinger and thumb and you make a little circle. So you got like an okay symbol. And the whole idea of the stupid fucking game that I'll always hate forever in a day yeah. is you, you while you're having a conversation with somebody, you make this little okay symbol yeah, I'm low to, down. I'm supposed to put my finger in it or try to. And if I can do that, then I get to punch you. But yes. if I don't see it, then you get to punch me. Yeah. It's like punch buggy. Sort of, and and uh, far more advanced, but it does rely on like you can't just do it in front of their face. You have yeah. to do it out of their eyesight, just out of their eyesight, and yeah. make their eyes move. That's the point of it. And I just did it to him because I'm an asshole. I'm not gonna punch. But it, it proves our point that, that you notice the shit <laughs> yeah. in the peripheral vision. You do, let alone something the size of a cat or, like you pointed out, a mouse. Yeah, even if he, even if Blade was the size of a mouse, if a mouse scurries across the floor, I'm sorry, you fucking see it. Yeah, you do. Whether you're afraid of mice or not. Yeah, it's you true. Do. You do see it. It's true. Ridiculous, ridiculous. So these people in this, okay, we're, we're living in a, in a world not only where puppets live, but where people cannot see outside of their, you know, even smaller peripheral vision. Everyone has tunnel vision. Everyone has very, very narrow tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah. And that's the world that we live in. But once... The Gestapo get to the room. Toulon blows his brains out. He's already hidden the trunk. Yeah, and a panel on the wall, which is like a really pretty place too. Oh, and I point out, and we'll we'll probably talk about it here and there. How opulent and pretty this hotel he lives in is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, very pretty. But it's got like wainscoting and chair rails and all the accoutrement gingerbreading you could imagine with the carved molding and stuff, which does exist in the two places they shot mm-hmm. this film. Um, he's pulled a panel out of the wall. So when you go in, it's not like an obvious secret door. It's not behind a bookshelf. It's behind a small panel on the wall under the chair rail. Totally hidden entirely from the sight of these Nazis, let alone anyone else generally walking into this room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's no way that they can get information from Toulon. Dead men tell no tales. Mm-hmm. With his brains battered upon a magic and mirth poster hanging on the wall alongside all of his old posters, I guess, from his marionette shows Mm -hmm. or from his shop, whatever it was that he had or did Mm -hmm. uh, that are decorating this room. And very, very sad because if you came into this movie looking for the puppet master, well, there he is, five minutes in, dead as a doornail. Yeah, absolutely. And now all of a sudden, we're in the modern age of 1989. At Yale. Yale University. And we are going to get introduced to our first caveman in a blazer. Barney Rubble. Barney Rubble. So what we have here is a collection of psychics. Now, you had, you had uh, talked about this, the Hell House angle of it all. 
And I had never noticed it before. Not only the first time would I have seen Puppet Master, I had never seen Hell House at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Didn't even know what it was. So I wouldn't have made that connection whatsoever. But now, particularly since we've done an entire episode on it, and you said that, oh, I 100% see it. Yeah, gathering a bunch of psychics somewhere to figure something out, being Mm -hmm. called there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it does speak to a whole bunch of other different stories where there's psychics gathered in a place or a whole bunch of people gathered in a place. The Haunting, The the House on Haunted Hill, both of those films basically have the exact same premise. A bunch of people from all walks of life gathered together in one house to for one purpose an experiment or whatever have you everyone usually has their own kind of angles even more so with hell house in particular because there is a little bit of sexiness happen here there's a little bit of a lady in a nightgown making sexy noises here and there uh there is a, a big a much larger sex angle in this actually not as fun or cool or lydia style as hell house is it's very fucking cheesy and very 80s and very soap opera and very fucking playboy. But there is like a sex angle. There is a different, there's different flavors of psychics, much like Hell House. There's a, someone who does psychometry. There is a witch. There is a medium. There is a dreamer. So there's clairvoyance and many different physical mediums too. So very, very much like Hell House in that way. Also very interesting to see in a film, the different types of psychics that can be around. Well, you know, most people would just think psychics, they just have visions or they, or someone would think of a fortune teller looking in a crystal ball. But if this person is touching objects, this person is dreaming, this person, you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, they like, have all very vastly different mm-hmm. uh, talents, which is a little more, like a lot closer to reality. Because if you just have like one psychic person, you have one like, person that has all of the traits that has clairvoyant dreams that has general clairvoyance somebody that has psychometry someone that has telekinesis then they're a total fucking unicorn Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that is you know a lot harder to swallow having them all have their separate little traits and having been pulled together in the past into their little group then it's it's a far more believable Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely and far more fun because you are you get all these different personalities what take them or leave them right Mm -hmm. you do get all these different personalities dana is my number one favorite she's the white witch and that's a really cool eclectic blend of many different cultures witchcraft and ritual is what she relies on she's not necessarily clairvoyant at all uh she just relies on ritual and she's they're more of like a mage and a spellcaster and protective person Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. despite her shitty attitude i love her shitty attitude yeah, and it really goes against what we would consider a white witch, somebody that would be dealing in a lot of positivity, a lot of positive energies, that type of personality. You would think that they'd just be a little bit more crunchier. And I don't know if that's a stereotype where someone is just like, it's a little bit just more hippie to me. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying that they have to behave this way. All I'm just saying is she has an incredibly black, negative sense of humor and personality in general sense of humor i don't think she's joking guys i i I, what i mean to say is it's just very biting and really tells it like it is and and on the one hand but also it comes out as she's this southern belle and so she it comes out with this very waspy drawl that comes out where she's being like so many backhanded comments coming out her at all times but yet she is dealing in 
types of magic that are inherently positive. I think manipulation and pageantry may have been part of her upbringing, and I'm projecting a lot on this very, you know, um, watered-down character. But it, it seems that she is a Southern Belle to a certain extent and then got involved in some gypsy sort of lifestyle, mm-hmm. which is quite hippy-dippy. Um, but yeah, tainted by some sort of old money upbringing, it seems. Yes. And then she translated all of that into her livelihood, which is as a fortune teller, mm-hmm. a fairly successful question mark fortune teller that seems to work for a carnival i suppose and and it also kind of seems the way that they open up her sequence almost like she's a hack almost like she's just making things up because she's telling a couple barbara crampton as one of them just generic things oh, the cute little barbara crampton bit. oh yeah you're, you're gonna get married and you're gonna have a boy oh and then you're gonna have a little girl and uh, and then you're gonna be rich well, he dropped out in tenth grade. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, and then she's working just, with your hands. Working or, with your hands, yeah. Oh, your grandmother's gonna die. And it's like, actually, it's your grandmother that's <laughs> gonna die. And and Barbara Crampton's like, oh, I'm sorry, but again, it seems fake, phony. It's it's like going to a, a fucking palm reader or something like that, and and you're thinking, yeah, whatever. They just tell you something generic or the witch I've met that most closely resembles this girl, uh, in that she's extremely intelligent. She's and and minus the manipulation because the the psychic I met that was also um, a high ranking witch was not a manipulative person by any means. But even some of her close friends that weren't in her coven or a patron of hers as a fortune teller. I did attend her services as a fortune teller. So did my grandmother, actually. But like a quite renowned fortune teller and psychic and witch, apparently. I didn't find that out until I was much older. But meeting one of her friends that was very close friends with a lot of people in her coven that, well, when she's on, she's on. And it's fucking terrifying. And I've dealt with her when she was on, quote unquote. When she's off, you just go through the motions, you know? You read some tea leaves or something that you're relying on symbology at that point. And it's not so much what's going on as far as you tapping into this universal consciousness. But when she was on, she was unbelievably correct and terrifyingly correct and could channel other people from the past, which was really crazy to see. I've actually got to see her do that. And she resembles this girl very, very fucking closely. So when they're on, they're on. When they're off, they're off. Hmm. Speaking about on, turned on. Oh, God. These oh, fucking people. Yeah. It's about to get sexy in here. In the lab. In the lab. Why don't you tell me your deepest, darkest sexual fantasy? Don't skimp on the details. I'm just going to comb my ponytail. While my wife humps my fucking leg. <laughs> oh, I cannot stand these people. Frank and Carissa. Now, I must say that this Carissa girl, uh, the blonde, who looks, for the most part, like a Playboy centerfold from 1989, she looks adorable in her little lab coat with her hair tied up and her little, like, emo frame glasses there, little Gucci (laughs) frame glasses. Really cute in the lab. And she looks like she's fed up with her boyfriend's skeevy fucking creeper attitude already which isn't the case unfortunately i wish she would have kept a little more of this prudish angle to her yeah but they are both um clairvoyants he seems somewhat clairvoyant more of her handler but she is um 
a psychometric so she can touch things and get the vibes and see past lives and see the past attached to that object which is kind of a cool trick although I don't understand what they're doing in this lab I guess he's trying to like amplify her powers by having her not touch things I didn't see her handling an item they have somebody on the other side of a glass in a control room laying on a on a couch all hooked up to these devices who's just reliving her most deepest darkest sexual fantasy while they're sitting in there kind of like getting off yeah it might be reading her brain waves to get a better understanding of what is happening to the human brain while they're thinking about these things and how that could transfer into psychic energy and how people like clarissa or any other clairvoyant could read these readings. What is the signal that they are picking up on? It and what could... is this residue? Is it Can it manifest physically and is it left behind? Like mm-hmm. so much dead skin cells on mm-hmm. my couch. Is it like a radio wave that's floating through the air right now that we could, through technology or whatever, tap into it? Why do some humans... Why are some humans able to tap into this energy and others cannot? And beer commercials will lead you to believe that it is in the airwaves. Yes. Yes. But, God, I cannot fucking stand these people. I'll take all the Barney Rubbles and Traces that I could shake a stick at, and Dana's, because I adore her as a character. But these two, oh my God. Very rarely do I really feed into the I can't wait for these people to die attitude, but I cannot wait for these people to die. To me, I think the the mistake of this of these characters, and maybe not the mistake, but the direction that I think you might be resenting the most about it is the fact that Clarissa seems to tap into the most or care the most or emote at least to the most of sexual energy she's in a bed that people have sex with she is uh, like orgasmic she is just writhing on the bed sheet and same thing she's in a bathtub where two people became and again why is it just the sexual energy? What if she was in a room? What if she held a, a, an object that someone used to kill somebody else in a fit oh, of rage? Went in the presidential suite in Overlook Hotel. Exactly. Would like so? Why is the only thing that the actor is being forced to act out the sexual energy? Because if this is the case, if she becomes a cat in heat because of a room that has an incredibly sexualized energy. Why does she not do the same thing? Now, listen, she is afraid and scared when uh, uh, she finds out a rape occurred in an elevator and she seems upset by that. But again, it seems it's first of all, there's just more people had sex in this bathtub. I need to touch myself. People had sex in this bed. There's just more of that and less of everything else. And I think that's just a weird choice because the thing that you get the most from this character is they're sex psychics? I don't get it. They're sex psychics. And uh, I've just always really disliked people that hinge on sex and sexuality so much. Like there's a, I talk about sex and sexuality a lot, but I don't start fucking touching myself and moaning while I do it. Like that's just fucked up. I mean, I feel like our podcast would be a lot more popular if you did, but. More than likely, yes. But with all (laughs) the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. And I've always disliked people that have that sort of attitude when people are like, oh, so you and Wes, eh? Recording, eh? All day. Alone. Man, I get that a like, lot fuck too. Off. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've really always hated that sort of attitude, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you mention to somebody, oh, I'm better da, 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 go have a shower, and they're like, shower, huh? Uh. Like, it can be comedic depending on what friend you say something creepy like that to when you don't really mean it. But when somebody fucking means it, yeah, she fucking means it. She this does. girl, all she thinks about, she is a cat in heat, and I've 
always really, really disliked people like that because there's so much more to life. And how have you not walked off a cliff? <laughs> I don't know. And plus, Frank is just, I just don't, that, that ponytail doesn't do anything for me. I, I hope even in the late 80s that was considered tacky. I hope so too. And I, I do think it did. I think that, that was a decision to make him look even extra slimier because, I mean, what's not slimy about your girlfriend writhing around on a bed because she's getting psychic sexual vibes and mm-hmm. you're going, like, tell me more, honey. You know, yeah. with the creepiest look on your fucking face. Yeah, especially he's like, oh yeah, tell me about Gallagher's hot young wife. I want to hear more about that. So what, you can beat off on the edge of the bed while she tells you about this guy that you don't really like banging his wife because you think she's hot? Weird vibe. And I'll tell you one thing that that I thought as a kid when I saw this movie was that I thought her getting turned on was how her power is activated. Oh, okay. Opened her up more to the realm. Well, I thought I, I thought it was, oh, she's psychic, but she needs to be aroused to do it. That's what my kid brain okay. came up with yeah. when I was watching it. That was just what I was getting from it. Now, because I just didn't understand the types of psychics that there were, and I didn't understand much what else they were saying about her powers. And but, you were also sitting there going, puppets, puppets. Puppets, puppets. Well, I guess she gets turned on because she gets turned on and she needs to be turned on. And his dialogue suggests that while you're in there playing with yourself, why don't you tell me about, try to pick up anything. So I thought, oh, it's it's some sort of amplifier for her powers. She needs to be turned on. Weird. Which is quite the opposite, where what she's picking up on is basically porn and she's mentally if not literally masturbating over it Mm -hmm. which is just very strange um i liked her so much better in the lab with a goddamn coat buttoned up to her chin i'm not prude mind you although Teresa is my second most favorite character in this who does have something buttoned right up to her chin and a little squeaky voice. Yeah, like that old spinster vibe that she's got. Just cleaning totally. it up. <laughs> just and clean. adjusting the drapes just so. And Wes is like, who the fuck does that? And I'm like, uh, me? Yeah, I, 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 I forgot about all the drapes around here. Yeah. <laughs> and those are not adjusted. Those are ill-adjusted right now. But normally I do adjust, you know, to have equidistant space in between. Never mind. Anyway, so... <laughs> Dead opposite of Teresa. Teresa's the dead opposite of, of Dana, but that goes to show with these psychic powers what very stark personalities these characters have. So they're quite well written and very well wrought and you know, all in all very well acted. Even our fuddy duddy Barney Rubble here, Alex. <laughs> Alex, what can you say? He is a dude that likes his shirts tucked, his blazers brown. His Beethoven hair well quaffed and just dreaming away, dreaming away about all of his psychic abilities in anthropology school. He keeps dreaming about uh, their friend Neil, who um, we find out has recently deceased, and his wife dancing in a ballroom. He mm-hmm. has this recurring dream. Mm-hmm. He seems to have waking dreams as well, a slight um, psychometric talent as well later right, on he's holding a photo he's and kind of getting a waking yeah. dream but for the most part he'll he's a little narcoleptic and fall asleep and have a <laughs> fucking clairvoyant dream of the future so mm-hmm. we have some some cool stuff here with the past the future we have a protective spell casting witch girl mm-hmm. yeah it's kind of cool um neil seemed to be the researcher the librarian of the group Mm -hmm. and the one most interested in 
finding out all the old alchemicals. So he must have been their alchemist of this group. Mm-hmm. So they're a, a venturing party mm-hmm. for Final Fantasy. He is a... <laughs> da, 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 da. But fuck all that because they have received a psychic signal to get them all to this house. Adina the... seemed to know where it was. Um Bodega Bay was the name of Correct, it. Correct, yeah, the, the Bodega Bay Inn. Yeah, in the real life, this was a film that two different locations uh, blended into one. It's the Mission Inn in California, which you, you could stay in for $180 a night, which is a pretty good price, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's an older building, quite opulent, very pretty, mm-hmm. um, seaside. Or most of it, what it seems to be almost all of it, filmed the interiors at Castle Green Apartments, which is not a hotel anymore. It used to be. There is a wing, there's an annex that is... Um, maintained for rental for a specific elite group of people who are probably the sort of psychics in this film, I'm just guessing. Uh, Both these locations are apparently haunted too. But the um, Castle Green Apartments does boast the oldest wrought iron man-operated elevator on the West Coast. Very cool. Very cool. We get to see a fucking hell of a lot of it in Mm -hmm. this film and that made me think like when i was looking at the the actual filming locations and how opulent this film is and there's quite a few of bands films that are very opulent like this and he might have recycled some of these sets he's got other um houses and buildings that he prefers to in other films that i just love looking around these places this elevator you'd almost want to think like it must be a prop must be a set it must be you know something that they've rigged up to look like it lives in here They might have had another set for getting some unique camera angles, but all in all, I think it was filmed in this antique wrought iron elevator, which you actually really love this elevator too, don't you? Yeah, I think about this elevator a lot, which is kind of a weird sentence, but uh, anytime that I'm thinking about old elevators that have the wrought iron gate that you close and creepy bellhops yeah exactly creepy bellhops and also the fact that it's it's not a panel control it's the old lever control bringing you to the specific uh place in the building that you want to get and also that green sort of faux marble interior down at the bottom and for some reason it sticks in my head a lot and when i see a lot of older elevators either in real life or in other films and stuff like that, I constantly think about that in Puppet Master. And not only that, but I think about the scenes in Puppet Master quite a bit, too. When the last hotel I was working at had a whole bunch of old wrought iron things and red velvet things, really worn out old red velvet things, and a lot of this faux green marble mm-hmm. covering all in the basement because they'd torn it out of somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That stuff would definitely not be in vogue anymore. Old brass, red velvet, and green marble? Nah. But I, you know what? I would kind of dig it if a hotel had that aesthetic. If I walked into a, a hotel like that nowadays and I would think to myself, oh, wow. I kind of feel like it's I'm in the 60s or something. Portions of the Lord Elgin are still like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chateau Laurier is 10 times more opulent, but the the Lord Elgin does have its uh, corners that are Mm -hmm. still of this era. So, yeah. Yeah, when I was an audiovisual technician, I used to have to go through the Lord Elgin a lot, especially down the the little corridors and and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, you would see older parts of the place as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, enough about the building. Puppets. Puppets, puppets, puppets. Mm -hmm. So we get to see Blade. We get to see... Pinhead, we get to see Tundler. We get to see these puppets interacting. Now, 
again, when there's people in the building, we, we are playing that game now that we've seen the puppets. We've shown you puppets right up at front. Charles Ben's on an idiot. He came here for Puppet Masters, so here's the puppets at the very least. Mm-hmm. Here's the Puppet Master. Show you that in the first 10 minutes of the film. Now we're going to take, we're going to dial it back a wee tad, and we're going to introduce our human characters. And then we're going to slowly see what has brought them to this building. And what has brought them to this building, the psychic message by their friend. They don't realize it, but Teresa and Megan will tell them. Megan, by the way, is Neil's widow. She is going to tell them, oh, didn't you hear? And now we're in a portion of the hotel. It looks like an old funeral home, but I mean, it's just because there's a casket in it. So you think, oh, it's like a funeral home. Or a living room, to hear or, you tell it. Or a, a living room. a big string of living rooms. Just, a, just an endless string of living rooms. And there is Neil's body. Now, there's something about Neil that there's something about everyone's attitude once they've entered this building. You know that whoever this Neil person was, henceforth known as Gallagher, mm-hmm. was not their friend. This was not someone that they genuinely cared about. This is not as though someone bringing you together to tell you, Neil's in trouble. We have to figure out what happened. It's almost as if they're at best indifferent towards the death and at worst happy that he's dead. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. None of them seem to be very close friends. They're all so very different. It's worse than the Losers Club of it. They yeah. are not pals. Uh, whatever had drawn them together, unlike the Losers Club, where they were actually very tight and very close in friends, these people were never at all. They're very, yeah. very different people. So I, I can totally get that. But it, we also get that sort of sense that Neil was a fucking snake in the grass. Mm-hmm. Out of all of them, he was the least scrupulous and the most untrustworthy and the most cruel. Mm-hmm. We just sort of get that vibe within seconds but you sort of get that when you're at a funeral for somebody that not a lot of people liked and and you know this because dana is so convinced that he might be faking it just to be sure drives a fucking hat pin right through the guy's fucking chest yeah about five inches in just hammers it in there i love it it's crazy because my initial thought was isn't there a a less lethal way to do that can't you just like stab him in the cheek or something because i know it's a needle and and really the chances of it doing irrevocable harm to a living person pretty slight but also you're really increasing your chances of killing someone when you oh i don't know stick a five inch pin in their where their heart would be i don't know there's a good horror experiment i'm pretty sure you can stick a hat pin through a human body a living human body and have them live to tell the tale i think the worst thing you'd worry about is a little infection but i mean but that deep, what if it what what if it punctured the heart though? Because it seems you can get some pretty pokey things into your heart and not have it just instantly die. It's not like a little balloon that deflates all of a sudden and you die, you know. And it's not like a stake, so it's not like really interrupting the blood flow so much. But wouldn't you bleed to death? You would be puncturing the sac around your heart, which would suck really bad. Yeah, you could bleed to death, maybe, but with a little tiny pin, I don't know. I'd have to ask a doctor. Yeah. But it is like you can rouse an unconscious person by pinching their earlobe very hard, let alone, you know, you could take that pin and hit the bottom of their foot and maybe even go in a quarter of an inch and Mm. get a reaction if they're alive or not to hammer something into their fucking heart as hard as you can five inches in. Yeah, that is a little brutal. But yeah, it just goes to show what sort of attitude she has towards this guy. Yeah. 
and just making sure that he's dead. Now, sure enough, she stabs him pretty much all the way down. She even puts her hand down on top of the the ball at the end of the pin just to make sure, pulls it out, not a drop of blood. This body has clearly been embalmed. Yeah, yeah. And it's not moving, so he's dead as a doornail. So they seem fairly satisfied with that. But they are going to stay for dinner, stay for the night. Where Dana gets a little mouthy with Megan, talking to her about things that are probably on everybody's mind anyway. You know, like what a snake in the grass that her husband was. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think that maybe he just married you for your money? Yeah, we do know that Megan's family owned this hotel that, that Toulon had stayed at 50 years prior. We know that he kind of came out of nowhere, this dashing Neil. And then when Megan's parents died suddenly, he decided to renovate the place. Yeah, so they've shut down this hotel, which is so convenient, knowing what we know and knowing what his friends know about his the reasons that he was there and what he was looking for and just what these people are all about that apparently the wife has no fucking idea of. So she's kind of taken aback at this dinner party with this drunk white witch trying to tell her about her shitty husband. Especially when the attitude is all of these people came to the house. She's never met any of these people. They're probably friends of her dead husbands, but she's not really sure. She's incredibly sad because her husband has died. She's very young. He's not very old. He's older than her, but you would think that she would assume that she would have many years with this person. So she's having basically what is awake for her husband after a funeral service because there was very specific instructions not to bury the body until after these people had arrived. And so they had waited and they're going to bury the body the next day, likely on the property. There's probably a family plot around there. I don't know if Neil had any other family or what whatnot. And then all of a sudden this woman is telling you, oh, by the way, your husband, who's dead now, bit of a cock. No one really likes him. And I'm just telling it like it is. Yeah, we get treated to not only a most disgusting shrimp eating scene by the skeevy ponytail bastard. Um, Alex kind of pulls her aside, not only to apologize for Dana's behavior, but to sort of like let her know like why they're there, how they all know each other, and explains their psychic powers in you know the most surface level way. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to freak her out or anything, but she's just like, holy shit, this is stuff I never knew about my husband. Mm-hmm. And this is how come we know people. And so now her attitude has changed from, oh, these must have been friends of my dead husband's to oh, they're not friends of my husband's. In fact, they were partners, in a sense, of the, of this weird psychic research that I didn't really know much about. Yeah, which would explain a little bit on how he had secreted himself away in one of the rooms since he began these renovations. And he was always working, always working. Some days she'd hardly see him. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, sheds a lot of light on that, where she might have thought that he was just hard at work on some sort of you know, academic paper, not so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Teresa's busy cleaning up after this little dinner party and yep. stoking the fire and muttering to herself how she never gets a day off. Mm-hmm. I love Teresa. She has got a mousy little voice and she's just a mousy little demeanor. And this is how I want to retire, tending a fire. Well, not a real fire, like not a dirty, stinky wood fire, like a, like a fake gas fire Thanks. Weird. Yeah. It's too dirty. I don't want to deal with that. 
Okay. I don't know how firewood either. So I'd be shining the brass fixtures. You would be. You just want a fire. A, the fireplace is never on. It was like the fireplace in my grandparents' house. They always had uh, the fireplace there, and it was always super pristine and clean. And there was brass pokers and and sweeps and all this kind of stuff around the fireplace. And I would always look at it my whole life. All this stuff, it looks like it's never been used. It's just here. It's just here. The fireplace looks like it's never had a fire in it. And I heard tale that, oh, yeah, 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 grandma and grandpa would have fires. What the hell are you talking about? When? That's the same log of fire that's been there for 15 years. Stinks so bad. If I had a fireplace that was functioning, I wouldn't use it either. I'm glad the one in here is walled up because... I love the smell of a wood fireplace. Disgusting. That's crazy to me. I don't like the smell of a burning wood fire. A burning wood fire in your home. No, it's disgusting. It's a horrible scent, especially when it's being cooked in year after year after year and you get that sooty, gross, rotten creosote stink. Yeah. No, that's yeah. not good. It's horrible. And I'm going to gag if we talk about it anymore. Well, as much as I'd like to see that, we can move on because, well, Teresa's going to move on. Yeah. She is going to get poked in the head, but not, they're not going to stab her in the head. Old baby hands pinhead is going to fucking crack her good. Yeah, we get that nice blood on the wood in the fire. They love doing that type of stuff. First, it's Toulon's head getting blown back against the wall. And so there's blood on the wall. And then we like to do a quick cut away from Teresa getting bludgeoned and then blood splatters all over the place, letting you know that she's died. And there's a huge scream and you think, oh, someone has discovered Teresa's body. How are they going to explain away this? Au contraire. Mon frere. What has happened is Neil's body is sitting upright in, in a chair arranged like someone in the room is Jason fucking Voorhees. Which I love so very much. There's quite a few points in this film where you fall in love with it all over again. And for me, this is one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You like the body sitting upright in the chair. I do. Now, you had asked a very important question while we were watching this. I did? Yes, you did. Why, Teresa? Why? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I did ask that question. I'm so smart and intuitive. The question that I had, Teresa has been a caretaker at this hotel. Let's presumably say with her relationship with Megan, I would not be surprised if this was the Alfred Pennyworth of the Wayne Manor. She'd been her wet nurse or some shit. Yeah. So Teresa, I mean, Teresa doesn't seem haggardly old, but she definitely... Seems like she's very familiar with Megan. She definitely feels as... And I definitely feel like she was there at the very least while Megan's parents were still alive before Neil arrived. Yes. So it would be it would be strange to me that the puppets would kill her. But again, it begs the question about how long have the puppets been out of the trunk? Have they ever met Teresa before? Yeah. And if they are 100% under someone else's power, then who has that control and why would they want to kill Teresa? Is it just because she was a convenient victim? Or is it because they need a logical person to blame on the arrangement of this body? All of a sudden, something strange happens. Neil's body has been moved. It's sitting upright in a chair. Teresa's nowhere to be found. Teresa's nowhere she'd to be. She'd be very adamant about not touching the body. She told them all to not touch the body. She wasn't cool with all of those people being there. Is it a logical person to blame? 
People are way too complacent with that idea though because people get that information. The body's been moved. Uh, Megan has passed out because she was the person to stumble across Neil's move body. Teresa is missing. We can't seem to find her. And fucking Barney Rubble here is just reading his book, sitting over her, just saying, can't find her anywhere. And that's the end of it. Everyone else has gone to their own rooms. Everyone else is just chilling out. Well, it's a big hotel. She could be anywhere. She could be off scrubbing something in the attic, setting mouse traps. I don't know. Yeah, it's true. We don't really know what is going on. But they seem satisfied with the idea that, yeah, yeah, Teresa moved the body clearly because who else did it? It wasn't any of us. It is very odd that they're so okay with this body having been moved around. I would not be able to let it go. I would be able to sleep in the building. Like, I'm pretty fine with death and cadavers and, you know, the funerals and things like that. Laying in state. Pretty comfortable with that. But when someone starts moving the body around and people go missing, that's when I would just leave. I would just leave. I would pull a whole master bailer move and just... I wouldn't even say goodbye. I would just actually, you know, if anyone were to ask me, be like, just go to the washroom or going to get a cup of coffee and get in the closest car and drive away. (laughs) I have nothing to do with these people. Yeah. Yeah. But everything seems fine. Nothing wrong here. No. Yeah. Let's all just hunker down and wait for morning when we're going to have this service. Well, some people are distracted by the fact that they're clearly uh, on the spectrum of being an alcoholic. On the spectrum of being an alcoholic, what? Tripsing through the fucking hallways with a bottle of champagne and your taxidermy dog? Is that what you mean? That's the thing that we didn't really touch on with the fact that Dana has a suitcase with her. Oh, this is where she's bringing all of her clothes. I don't think she brought a change of clothes. I think she brought <laughs> knickknacks for magic spells and her taxidermy dog. Yeah, Leroy. He's like a palm or something. Yeah, yeah. He's like a some kind of a cross between a Pomeranian and a pug. I don't know what he is. Like something. Something. Those little, like, dust mop looking dogs. Yeah, I mean, someone out there probably knows exactly what type of dog this is, but I don't. It's just one of those little foo-foo dogs that I could give a fuck about. This is probably the most well-behaved version of a foo-foo dog I've ever seen because it's taxidermy and lives in a suitcase. Leroy is a pretty cool dog, but she does, you know anthropomorphize her dead dog and talk to it like it's a living dog and carry it around like it's a little people mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. is a, she's a dog mom she's like what what is this her fur baby fur baby That's that is the is. that is the term that i wish would die. is she a fur mom is that what you call the mom of a fur baby i don't know i wonder fur mom but i do know i've heard fur baby my dad's used the term doggy daddy doggy daddy to refer to those people that baby their dogs Okay. In the males, though, but uh, he, I've never heard a term for the the mom version. Let's just say fur mom, because that's a good that's a good blanket. Because that could be a cat, that could be a dog, that yeah. could be a guinea pig, it could be anything. Rabbit, a fur mom. Yeah, she's fur mom for sure. It's fucking weird. And uh, your favorite couple? Oh my god, getting it on? Are they ever getting it on? Blindfolds, handcuffs lingerie he sweats a lot while he's getting fucked yeah yeah and it's um interesting i I was relieved when you pointed out that you could still see he's wearing underwear which was great because it was just kind of filthy gross the sort of sex you wish that parents never ever ever had it definitely seems like that though right it seems like you 
the scene itself is first of all the the sex scene goes on for way too long yeah. and they're loud too like everyone can hear it and barney rubble's like trying to block it out with pillows around his head and stuff he acts like he is someone in the next room is getting exercise he's like ah <laughs> scanners yeah Man, exactly scanners are on his ass cuz i've definitely heard my neighbors have sex and i'm always in the mentality of ah. Neighbors having loud sex. Yeah, of course you're not. Jesus Christ, Wes. I'm into it. Mm, I'm not. I, I tolerate it. It's sort of no different than street sweeping. You know, that's about what I equate that with, street sweeping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do, call the city? No. Yeah, it's true. Nothing I can do. Nothing I can do about neighbors doing noises. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. <sighs> And uh, Dana has taken to the hallway because she can't stand the, the, the fuck noise. And she's just thinking to herself, well, I may as well wander with my dog drunkenly down these empty corridors. And these guys are just having kinky sex. Not really. It, it's, 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 it's kinky sex to people that don't have sex that way. Yeah. Kinky sex to people who don't have sex at all either. Or kinky sex to people who think Fifty Shades of Grey is titillating oh yeah yeah what are they there's there's a term for that too is it is it uh like mommy porn or some shit like that mommy porn or um oh there's another term i can't think of all of a sudden well it's not important yeah it's like it's the, the fuzzy cuffs kink crowd yeah where it's just a, a little bit naughty but i mean it really is the kink equivalent of missionary sex with the lights off yeah, it really is. And it's not hot to me. And I don't know. I think it's because I find him just so sweaty and gross. Like, you're on the bottom. How is he that sweaty having sex? If if my partner was on the bottom and got that sweaty from having sex, I would say we should go to the hospital. Because there's some kind of issue here. I did point out that it is California. It appears to be some sort of summertime. And there's candles everywhere in this room, which can raise the heat by like two, three degrees. Yeah, so maybe that's why he's so sweaty. But while they're going to town, they're having a... a... Maybe he's actually doing something on the bottom, too. Not just laying there. Yeah, maybe he's he's like thrusting up and yeah. shit. Yeah. And have been for hours because everyone's so fed up with all their noise. Yeah, this, it's tantric almost. Just keep having sex. Could be. That could be it. She's not sweaty, though. No, she's not. She's looking like part of a Dreamweaver video shoot on top of him, basically. <laughs> or total eclipse of the heart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're having sex and Bonnie Tyler's just in the background, just wailing. Which would be fitting and probably a whole other level of hot to these people. Oh, yeah. Fucking fog machine rolls in. and. But it's annoying. And, you know, I, I'm pretty happy with it, though, because he's blindfolded and this sets us up for what? Murder. Yes. Of course Mayhem. it does. Finally, these fucking people die. And this is the first time we see Tundler. Yeah. Because first we see Blade... Taking his little hook hand, dragging that old wood chair across the floor, looks in the keyhole, sees what Dana's doing. Mm-hmm. He's just fucking wandering around talking to her dog, and he says, "Okay, got a look on, got a lock on her. Know what she's doing." Pulls it to the next room over. They're having sex, so that's what's gonna happen. And then who comes in the fucking frame is just Tundler. This is why the puppets really remind me of like G.I. Joe or Transformers because they always, always selling toys, right? I'm not saying Puppet Master is selling toys, although you go to fullmoon.com and you can get some. 
Um, it's just the idea of like Puppet Master as a franchise always has this sense of oh here's just another puppet where did this guy come from where did torch come from i don't know we never saw him get built he's just there yeah and so you think okay i guess toulon made other puppets that we just never saw before and so puppets show up puppets leave there's no explanation about who is what and and what's going on but this is where we get introduced to tunnler who would become a mainstay of the series and 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 a favorite of a lot of people he's got a little drill on his head looks almost he looks also like he's in the military or a factory worker, but he looks more like he's in a military guy. He looks like he's also wearing a Nazi uniform. Like right? a parachutist or something like that. Yeah, yeah. something like that. With a, with a mean visage too. So looking a lot like a very cruel G.I. Joe character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And got that drill in his head. Now, Clarissa sees that the door is now open while they're having sex. And that's a no-no for a lot of people when they're having sex. Oh shit, the door is open. It was completely closed. Now it's completely open. She thinks there's somebody in the room. Exactly. And so she looks under the bed. And in a, in a thing that could only be described as, well, now it's time for this character to die and this and that is the end of it. She looks under the bed for way too long, like definitely sees this little dude under there. And he runs towards her with his drill bit out spinning around. And yet she doesn't have the presence of mind to stand up and get the hell out of its way. And in a way, you kind of forgive. Listen, like the puppets themselves... We talked about this in the previous episode with one of the sequences in Tales from the Hood, but the puppets themselves are very small. And so you need to have reasons for people to have the the, the drop on them. And a lot of the times it can be achieved by the simple fact that people are not expecting a doll to be alive and to also have lethal intent. But they're definitely not on edge all that much. And she certainly doesn't have the best survival instincts of the world, but her face gets fucking drilled. Now, we don't see anything, but we see her bloody hand. We will later, but we see her bloody hand rise up. Meanwhile, Frank doesn't really hear or register any of this. (laughs) Because not only do people in this franchise have tunnel vision and get petrified, even though they don't look petrified, they just, once they're on the floor, they kind of tend to stay there until they die. Um, They're also, you know, not clued into the sounds of death whatsoever Mm -hmm. so he's blindfolded i guess he can't tell what's going on at all but he thinks that everything's fine because he starts feeling like a female presence a female presence we hear female noises little giggles and sighs and and then he gets these the soft telling lips of porcelain and wood and tiny little Hand, tiny, tiny little hands. Tiny little hands all over his body. And I definitely would be thinking, oh, yeah, this is my longtime lover. No, yeah. Doesn't even feel human. Probably cold to the touch. And tiny little hands. Her hands have suddenly shrunk to like one fifteenth of the size they had been. He doesn't seem to be able to tell the difference. Nope. Maybe it's that sheen of sweat has created a barrier between him and reality. And he can't feel things properly. And his nerve endings are deadened as a result. Well, this is their introduction to Leech Woman. Yeah. Probably the grossest power. And for some people, I bet you this is a deal breaker for all the puppets of like the grossest thing that someone could possibly do. People don't like leeches most of the time anyways, yeah, right? Yeah, no. And I think that I had referred to her as nightmare fuel, as cliche as that term is. She fucking is nightmare fuel. And I think it's... um. 
not only like do the, the puppet's faces don't really change jester has some facial features because he can change his face yeah um but we don't see it move with her not only does her feature her features don't change unless she's barfing up a leech and when she's barfing up a leech her mouth contorts mm-hmm. what would be painfully were mm-hmm. she alive it's unfucking real. Almost like a snake unhinging its jaw. It very much is exactly like that. And when she doesn't have a, a snake, when she doesn't have a leech that's barfing out of her mouth, her features are frozen with almost a blow-up doll look with a slightly parted mouth and nice, you know, uh, Brooke Shields hair and Barbie makeup and just a very still face. But the open mouth, mid-gasp, if you will, is just surreal looking and creepy looking in its own right and that she doesn't her face doesn't move and her mouth isn't closed looks like she's always about to say something very very unsettling looking and then you do this thing with her jaw yeah the fact that the leeches are engorged to begin with and coming out of her covered in slime like slimy leech slime and are wet and gushy all of those things together very very terrifying very effective absolutely and it is the stuff of nightmares because it's happening in a bed. The guy is blindfolded. He thinks it's his lover. Your brain trying to process what you're looking at when you finally realize that there's pain being administered to your body in a way that you don't like. You're saying no. I mean, he doesn't have a safe word for this sexual encounter, which is weird. I would have liked it if he was trying to bust out a safe word and he just kept saying banana, banana, banana. Or something like that. Well, this is built as a horror comedy. Exactly. And then when he were to shake his head enough to have the blindfold removed and you were to look down at that, what would you even say with this horrific doll? No, and this is a question you've asked a couple times while watching this. Like, how would you describe that? What do you think she thought she saw? What do you think... What 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 would the person's reaction be? What would your reaction be if you suddenly saw a puppet doing what Blade is doing right now, or doing what Leech Girl is doing right now? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no almost no words. Your 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 mind would draw a complete blank of shock. Mm-hmm. I think unless you were an extremely rational person that believed that spirits can inhabit inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, what would he think? He'd been tricked that this was his lover for one, so he's probably immediately pissed. He's got. A shriveling boner. Yeah. Immediately. It's never a good feeling. Yeah. Even if he was into whatever pain leeches inflict. Me and Chris were talking about this scene not long ago and about what, how painful leeches are. Are they painful? I've never had a leech on me like I've that. had a leech on me. Like a big one like that? Uh, no. It was fairly large. Uh, my grandparents' cottage had leeches. Now, our lake and uh, my, my family cottage, uh, it's a pretty clean lake. And there, there's no, there might be leeches in some of the swampier areas, like in the corners. But of even the lake. so, it's not like flocks of leeches. So it's exactly. Not like you, you know, put your toe in and come up with three leeches, like in uh, Stand by Me when they end up exactly. In the leech pit. There's not anything like that. Now, when I had a leech, I had it on my forearm, mm-hmm. and it, it's very easy to pull it off. You can just pull it right off. And I do remember feeling it stretching out, but I don't think that it had really. Started, started burrowing. Started... I've had a, a small, small, very small blood sucker uh, that had burrowed in quite a bit. And it was hard to get off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't like it was 
not really painful. It was mostly just horrible. It bled a hell of a lot. I do remember that. But that thing was small. On a canoe trip once, I saw a leech that was probably nine inches long. Really? And that wasn't engorged, and that was swimming along. So yeah, it was, it was like doing that, that, that wavy swim that they do. Yeah. So, like, that was the biggest leech I ever saw, but I never saw it on a person. Yeah. So I don't know. Once they get going, are they like bloodsuckers? Can they bury their head inside of your flesh? Yeah, I really don't know. Which I guess would explain why this guy acts like he's in so much pain. Mm-hmm. She keeps vomiting a lot of these leeches onto him. And I guess the idea is that it will bleed him dry. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how many leeches it would take to do that. They're, I would say that these leeches are clearly magical in a way. They live inside of this puppet for decades, right? Yeah. So, And I don't even know... Because I was trying to think, are leeches something that can become dormant? Can they live an indefinite amount of time? I don't think so. You can dry leeches out. Like, not that I dried leeches out for any purpose or anything, mm-hmm. but I've seen it. But they can live outside of the water for a very long time with no blood. Not like that long, though. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about leeches. Yeah, me either. I wish I did. Yeah. Somebody out there is listening that's like a leech expert. School us. Let, educate us. Let us know. But... That's two down. Three, technically. Teresa, I forgot about the help. Yeah, yeah. The help. Yeah. She would appreciate that, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, to my favorite people to see die, died. My least favorite characters entirely. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Dana isn't long for this world either. No, and even though she encounters Alex, who is wandering around. Propositions him for sex, I guess, out of sheer boredom. Yeah, sheer boredom. And that definitely seems what it's like. It's, it's, hey, you're here. I'm here. Do you want to fuck? It might be good for both of us. I don't know. Yeah. If we have to listen to them have sex, we could make noise of our own. Yeah. He's not interested. I think that their euphemism for it is rearranging the walls, which I don't know. Maybe that's an 80s term. I've never heard it before. Like knocking boots? Well, that makes sense, though. Rearranging the walls. I do like to keep my boots on during sexy times. Yeah, that's, I think, always think of that as more of like a cowboy thing or a military thing. Mm-hmm. When you would have to keep your boots on. Or yeah. if you're going to die with your boots on. Yeah. But like rearranging the walls. It's weird. And that is a weird term. I've never heard it used to describe sex, but whatever. Whatever. So he turns her down quite unceremoniously and walks away. Yeah. Dana retires with her stuffed dog and her half bottle of champagne. <laughs> Sounds so sad when you say it like that. I think she's got a pretty interesting night ahead of her. Granted, she'd probably be passing out 10 minutes after this, and she is pretty tired and all, um, which would explain when she's trying to scramble away from the puppet that's trying to fucking kill her, how she moves so slowly, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. It's Pinhead that goes after her, isn't it? It is. Those weird-ass man hands. Pin- <laughs> Pinhead has this move that he likes to do. You're supposed to get infer from Pinhead that he's quite strong. Very He's strong. a muscle man. He's a muscle man. He has giant fists. He has giant fists. So at the very least, he seems to have the strength of an adult human. Maybe even more, because he seems to have a very vice-like grip that when he grabs people by the calves... It probably crushes every sinew in there and your muscles are useless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he definitely uh, breaks her ankle because mm-hmm. he, ba- he throws her onto the bed and then twists one of her ankles... And then that's kind of it. She's kind of a lame duck from that point on. She can't... Of course, she falls to the floor. She falls to the floor. What good is she on a bed? The puppet couldn't even jump up on a bed. Mm -hmm. So she falls to the floor with this broken ankle, yeah. Yeah, but she definitely does get to the... It's almost 
you had pointed out when we were watching that she definitely seemed like the type of person that would be ready to believe that these things were happening. I mean, listen, she was just in her bedroom and Neil had been rearranged in her bedroom there. And she basically just started doing a lot of uh, ritual shaking rattles and, and things. Blowing smoke in his face and closing his eyes and um, doing what spells she could to make sure the dead would rest peacefully. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't like freaked out there was a dead body in her room. No. And even she didn't even seem like she was going to leave after that. It looked like, wow, just fussing with my suitcase. I'm going to bed now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to sleep with this dead body sitting up. Worry about the dead body in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Maybe whoever put it there will come back for it, or it'll leave on its own accord, or I'll wake up and there'll still be a dead body there, which is the most plausible. This is also a girl that just put down her taxidermy dog to deal with the corpse in her room. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. she doesn't seem bothered by any of this at all, which is very no. weird, but... Which is why she's... Works for her, and yeah, why she would be more accepting of, of these puppets, and not be so scared of the puppets existing themselves. Yeah, because it almost like she has this real uh, realization while Pinhead is lunging after her because he gets his fists up. And he's kind of doing the dance a little bit. Bobbing and weaving. Yeah, bobbing and weaving and shit. And he punches her a few times and the sound effects on that indicate that they're pretty heavy strikes. They draw blood. But then she just kind of grabs him almost like she has this instant realization. Oh, yeah, you weigh a pound and fucking throws him down a flight of stairs. Mm-hmm. But that's when... She's introduced to a far more dangerous customer only because Blade has implements on his body that he can use to kill you with. A hook for a hand, a little tiny hand, and a blade, a knife blade that's attached to his other hand. Mm -hmm. It looks kind of like a more menacing pocket knife type thing. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like a buck knife that's... Yeah, that's just sized for him. Yeah. Adorable little fella, isn't he? Yeah, he's all skinny and, and uh, you know, he's just got his long, long white hair and his weird skull-like features and his dagger eyes that poke out when he's mad about something or super intently focused on something. It's kind of hard to say what emotion that is. Usually anger, I would always assume. Anger, interest, anything that would have him, you know, focusing his eyes. Mm-hmm, and then these mm-hmm. little, like, little tiny points pop out. Yeah. Almost like little darts. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Does he launch them ever? I don't think he's ever launched them. That would be so cool. Yeah, where he just has like hidden weapons that he only uses for just such an occasion. Mm-hmm. If somebody was holding him face to face and yelling at him like, mm-hmm. you know, I'll get you, you stupid puppet. What are you going to do now? And then he'll just launch two darts into their eyes. <laughs> yuck, yuck. Yeah. So she's on the floor. She's incapacitated. She is crawling like an idiot. Um, trying to get away from Blade. Mm-hmm. And she stumbles into the elevator. Yeah, thankfully. So you think that she'd be safe for the most part. Trying to the cl- elevator down. To the yeah, trying to close the door. Blade tries to get in, but I mean, he is just a little puppet. And he doesn't seem to be as strong as Pinhead by any means, so he can't wrench that door open. They do a really good job here, aside from the music, her acting ability, and the motions of the, the doll that they're using. It's not just like, you know, someone haphazardly wiggling a doll at the door. They're, they're, he's using his hook to try and open it. And they do embody a lot of character into even the parts that are obviously a doll being controlled by somebody we can't see. Mm-hmm. A very well done scene. But yeah, Stana taking the elevator down to the first floor might seem like a good idea. Where she can maybe crawl up the front door to safety. I don't know what her plan was. But 
she tends to have forgotten that she threw Pinhead down there. So as soon as she gets to the bottom floor, the elevator opens and there's Pinhead at the door ready to punch her again. Mm-hmm. And then she gets like, at this point, the most graphic death, which is, well, I mean, whatever Tundler did to Clarissa would definitely be the most graphic. And we definitely see the, the handiwork of that guy later. But this is a straight up slash across the throat. Yeah. It's weird to me that Dana saw this death, her own. She still decided to go and she still didn't do anything differently. She didn't recall that she had that premonition. It played out exactly like it was supposed to. There's nothing you can really do differently. I mean, that's the beauty of something like Final Destination and movies like that. And the idea that if you do foresee your own death, Perhaps the moves that you make to try and avoid what you've seen are exactly what you did to get yourself in that situation. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing you can do. And I'm sure she shared that same sentiment that there's really nothing that she could do. So just carry on, drink a half bottle of champagne and pet your stuffed dog. <laughs> That's pretty good. But you're right. It is very brutal. It is the most brutal death that we've gotten to see. Because um, we don't really see the aftermath until later. And leeches, but like if you're grossed up by leeches... If you're believing the actor's performance that he's getting so much blood taken out of his body that it's painful or whatever, or that he's freaked out by this little tiny doll barfing things on him, or freaked out by his slight sexual attraction to the entire ordeal, mm-hmm. you don't really see a lot until the bodies are displayed later on. But this one you do have almost like an Italian slasher, black glove killer kind of angle to it all. And it's going to even more Italian because we're going to get into a fucking trippy dream sequence. A trippy dream sequence in a ballroom and with dancing and masked tux- tuxedo mask. It's basically tuxedo mask. Tuxedo mask, yeah. I was going to more fan of the opera, but it oh, also works as, so. it works as tuxedo mask. I mean, he didn't throw the rose, but you don't always need to. The look on his face, that was adorable. Yeah, you don't always need to, Wes. It's okay. You don't. I, I, I take it that you've been without a rose from time to time. I wish people loved me as much as people love Tuxedo Mask. So the dream sequences that have plagued Alex, um, it, it does involve Teresa dancing with who we assume is Gallagher with a mask on. Yeah. He's had this dream a couple times. He's had this dream since before he even arrived, before he even knew that Neil was dead. Mm-hmm. So he's having this dream all over again. And this is the most elaborate of it. And this is Megan calling him, going to his bedroom. He's sleeping in his blazer. and t- No, he's not. But he soon will. He I can't leave this room without my blazer shirt tucked in, my slacks. I need it all. Or else people won't know I'm an anthropology professor. <laughs> As it follows. So this entire d- dream sequence comes out, and it's pretty trippy. He's walking around this scene asking, what does this mean? What does it really mean? Why do I keep having this dream? Is this Gallagher she's dancing with, why is he wearing a mask? What's the symbology? And he's holding a gun to her and saying you can't save her or something like that Mm -hmm. and he is yes digging for symbology which is kind of interesting because when it does pan out when he's having more dreams of them in a specific room in this hotel and then all this stuff basically comes to pass because right when the dream sequence is open megan does come to his door in the exact same fashion wakes him up and now they're searching through the hotel where is everybody Mm-hmm. There's something that she needs to show him, though. Yeah. It's where Neil had been doing all of his work. 
And this is where we get a little bit of information, but not as much as not as much information we'll get later. But from still, Neil himself. From Neil himself, yeah. yeah. But we do get to see the shambles that Toulon's room was left in. Mm-hmm. Last we saw it, sure, it had a nice big blood stain on the wall and a dead body in it. But it wasn't like this. It had been, per, per most part, torn apart. Mm-hmm. And his nice little posters were all torn off the walls in the shambles. Mm-hmm. Do you think that anyone... It's almost... No one used this room the entire time? Guess it, not. It must have been shuttered. Maybe the Nazis removed the body and the rent had been paid. Like the vampire would pay his rent for 20 decades or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe the rent was paid in this room for a long time and no one went in. Could be. Like that woman, remember, I think she was in France or something like that. And the, the she no longer lived in this apartment and left it kind of suddenly. And people opened it for the first time ever. And it has all of these old artifacts in it. I, I seem to remember a Mickey Mouse plushie from like the 40s in it. And okay. people, people are talking about uh, declaring this room uh, a historical site because it is a, t- a, a time capsule essentially of all this old stuff the room hadn't been opened in ages and it was very much that this person didn't live at this apartment anymore but just kept paying the rent yeah and never going back crazy mm-hmm. there are laws about if uh, you were dying in your apartment or abandon your apartment landlord can't necessarily go into it until you haven't paid for six months or something like that mm-hmm. but if you've paid for a couple of years or if it's coming out of a trust fund Every month, and the landlord just cashes the checks. If you were a really good tenant, they had no reason to go in there until there's some sort of malfunction. They have no reason to go in there and legally can't, right? So mm-hmm. um, I can see that happening. There was a shoe store. I forget where, but it was the same sort of idea. It had actually been walled over and completely contained, and it was a shoe store from, like, the 30s or something. Really? Yeah, a living time capsule, for real. Maybe that's what happened with Toulon's apartment. Maybe. But now it's fucked, for sure. Now, knowing what I know, come the very end scenes of this film, Megan doesn't seem like she knows anything about what's going on. She does seem genuinely shocked throughout all of this. It's almost like she married the guy, but was content to just let him do whatever. Now, apparently this dude was quite the charmer. Yeah, he looked pretty charming. But I I, I find it hard to believe that. So this guy just basically takes over this hotel and does whatever in this room. And he's renovating. Don't worry about it. That's weird to me. And then sequesters himself in a room. Maybe she was busy. Maybe she had the vapors. And she was like pulled <laughs> up. Sort of like an old gothic. She was had one room. Sort of like the yellow wallpaper. And was going mad. Who knows? Out on a widow's watch for, the, for entirely. Out on the pouch. She's got the vipers. Yeah. <laughs> or something. Or he fed her line after line after line. Mm-hmm. That he was working on some important thing that needed privacy. Or he would only spend X amount of time in there and then come up for dinner. I don't know. Maybe. Who knows? But once they discover that in his ramblings, shufflings, in his sequestered state, he discovered the secret to Toulon's. In a nice little diary. It's the shortest library scene ever. Mm -hmm. But we do get to hear, in Toulon's words, the Egyptian rights of afterlife that he's bestowed on his puppets Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's weird because in the first sequence that we see toulon give jester life it's like he's casting a spell closing his eyes saying a prayer and then the puppet comes alive in later 
films, it very much is less magic, far more alchemy. It is chemical what is imbuing these people with life. Mm-hmm. Although they kind of fuck with the idea of souls and implanting energies and life force into a thing in the first place. And I suppose the formula just keeps everything lubricated. Which sort of works well with the whole idea that it is an Egyptian right, because mm-hmm. it wasn't just all the words you were saying over the body. It wasn't all just the oils you were anointing the body with. And it wasn't just all what you have inside of the body. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't all about where you put the body in. Mm-hmm. It was all of those things together. Mm-hmm. So, sure, okay. The puppets themselves kind of become weird ushapti, these things that the Egyptians would put organs and all that kind of stuff in, except this would imbue them with life somehow. Yeah. Uh, we only get to see when we see Jester's birth, uh, the very, 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 very final step, which might just be a little bit of flamboyance on behalf of Toulon mm-hmm. at that point. And it might have nothing to do with the reason why he comes to life. That's true. Yeah. It's just some like fun words to say. But after they get all this information and they head down to the dining room, we're all getting ready for another party. Yeah, candles everywhere. Everyone's seated around the table. Frank looks happier than he's looked in years. He does happy. Like you said, he died with a smile on his face, which makes me think he was kind of into Leech Girl. Kind of, kind of. Or something. No, they're all dead. And this is where we get to see Clarissa's fucked up. Tunneler got to her mouth. Yeah, it sort of looks like what the aftermath I would imagine if uh, you were left... In an apartment with your pet cat and they start eating at you because apparently they go at your eyes, tongue, mouth because it's like the softest and easiest and sometimes smells like food to them, I guess, or something. So that's what they usually do is eat all the flesh off your cheeks and mouth. Yeah. So that's sort of what it looks like. It does look like that. Teresa isn't there. We know she got dead, but she's not seated around the table. It's just the three psychics. It is just the three psychics. And that's where we find the person. The person who's responsible for this whole elaborate scheme. Barbara Crampton. Barbara Crampton. She shows up. She's got an army of the undead with her. She's angry because her boyfriend wasn't a gold mine. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, she came happens. flying through a interdimensional portal. I don't know. Robots from Chopping Mall. I'm trying to get some Barbara Crampton references in here. The point being is it's Neil. Neil Gallagher. He, who would have guessed? He is dead. Metaphysically speaking. But in a much more accurate term, he is not the puppet master. He is basically a puppet. He basically is. It's the same process that has worked on him. And he wasn't the first. The first experiments were Megan's parents. Mm -hmm. And we will learn this through a lot of exposition in one scene. Well, he's got to do that whole villain thing, stalking he, around the room, telling them what he did, and telling them what happens in grandstanding, and puffing his chest out, and holding his hands out thus in grand gestures. It's very super villain. And also, in these scenes, I always get really confused because he didn't tell this to any of the other people he killed. I can understand why he's telling Megan. I don't understand. It's Alex is just there and aware something's up, so he may as well tell somebody. But was Alex more special than the others? The others didn't have a right to know, and he really wanted... Because, listen, he could have just had the puppets swarm them. And Well, how fun is it to do all the supervillain stuff if you don't have anyone to grandstand? Do you think he was sitting there, I'm just so... Oh, I can't wait to tell them? Yeah. Oh, I want everyone to know how great I am. I really do. We all have those moments, I know I do, where I'm just sitting there... 
tapping my fingers on my keyboard and I just want everyone to know how fucking great and smart I am. And you and Alex would have been great pals. We would. I would definitely sit there and... Uh, Sorry. Then you and Neil would have been great pals. We would. We would have done it. We would have done it in tandem. We would have finished each other's monologuing sentences and shit. Would have been good. It would have been good. It would have been good. And at least, you know, he's kind of easy to take down. Or, well, to hear him tell it, he's not very easy to take down. You have to basically obliterate the body at this point. He's got what you called super puppet strength. That's what he... Listen, when somebody in a speech tells me that they're far more powerful now than they ever were, to me, and, and... that is trying to, as like, what do you got, like super, what do you got, puppet powers? Like, I don't understand what you're trying to say. I can understand from the practical standpoint of you could probably shoot this guy in the heart and not kill him. We've seen him take a hat pin. We can see that he has no pulse, no breathing, nothing that would indicate that he was alive whatsoever. We know that he is essentially filled with this green goo. I'm sure that- his bones are, are highly mendable and like you could definitely just drill your bones back together and be good to exactly go. yeah you could you could probably give yourself false appendages just attach yeah like wooden constructs to you and then here's my blade hand and shit like that you could just have that type of stuff why would you want to though but i guess the the point is is that he is now immortal but not everlasting. You can destroy the body, but Alex does not have the fucking stomach for that type of violence. He doesn't believe. You are, after all, an anthropologist. He doesn't say that, but he practically says that. He does practically say that, yeah. And you're a man of science. You're a peaceful man. Look at that blazer. It's so brown and it's kind of tweed and people you may as well have a pipe and are you sure it's untucked oh made you look yeah yeah exactly asshole speech yeah exactly and stuffy old alex probably can't do it megan's mortified she is seeing the person who she thought was a good person who she thought she loved who she thought was dead and thought had her best interests at heart and has now just learned not only is he not dead, he had basically killed her parents. And experimented on them. Yeah. Which is just brutal. Although, all this time I'm thinking, but the last scene of this film belies this performance where she is mortified and shocked. She must have been in on this to a certain extent, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that last scene is just there to throw me off entirely like this. But she is mortified. She's been fooled. Mm-hmm. And now we have a scenario where, what's his motivation? His motivation now is not only for his own immortality, but to make sure that this secret can be transferred to other people. He's done playing with stupid wooden puppets. He throws Jester on a chair unceremoniously. Instantaneously. The other puppets are agitated. Any semblance of control that... Neil might have had over these people. Puppets, you mean? Puppets. Sorry, there are people. Puppet people. These puppet people are people to me. People puppets. Yeah. Whether he had fed them lies about what he wanted to do, that he was there. Toulon loved these puppets and he assured them, I'm here to protect you. I Don't you worry. I'm going to hide you. You're going to be safe. 
and Toulon sacrifices his own life to keep the puppets safe. So who knows? You're right. We don't know what Neil would have said to them to have them do his bidding. Mm -hmm. Um, But now he's, yeah, done with the puppets. All the puppets' heads turn in unison. Like, what the fuck did you say, asshole? And you can tell right away that the puppets um, are going to turn on him. But he wants to experiment on Alex. Exactly. And not just Alex, but so he's going to kill them both. And all the shit that Neil is doing to them, uh, Jester has his shocked face on and he's looking towards Megan and he's looking towards Neil. I, it's The way that it's filmed looks as though Jester is concerned for what Neil is doing to them, which doesn't track to me because of the fact that the puppets killed all of these people. And... Sort of, but I think Jester's also a jester, right? Mm-hmm. So he's sort of like playing the comedic, like, huh? What? Oh my God. What's going to happen now? I don't know, kids. Let's watch. You know? but, even, but even when we see Jester, when, uh, when they kill Dana, for example, the camera pans to Jester as his head is twisting around and it snaps into his sinister, like, yeah, face. I don't think Jester is, a, is, a, is like minds the murder at all. But this scene makes it seem like Jester doesn't want Neil to do these killings because Jester doesn't have a look of anger or sadness on his face. It's shock like and he keeps looking to everything that Neil's doing and the uh, and he seems to be somehow silently getting the other puppets to mobilize. Now, this is just my fucking interpretation of the scene. No, because he is looking from one person to the other and being like, do you guys see this shit? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so we got to do something. And so this is when Tundler makes his fucking move. Because, like, Alex and Megan can't really do anything. He's got super puppet strength. And we know that because every time he punches, it's a thunderous thud. But it's not just... Here's, like, the fucked up thing that I always forget about this movie. He's not the only one that's back up and walking. Teresa's fucking up. Don't touch (laughs) the body. Yeah, don't touch the body. She's brandishing a poker. She has a tie tied around her head. Her hair is teased out like she's been electrocuted. It was just very strange. And And that's... She's in that scene, and that's it. Yeah. That one scene, she doesn't do anything. She just scares them back. Maybe she goes back to scrubbing the fireplace or straightening the drapes. I have no fucking idea. But I tell you, Neil gets tripped up by a a pinhead. Which is awesome. And this is the only time that the use of his hands conveys any sort of emotion. Because I really don't like the character of Pinhead. I just don't. Visually, he's the least interesting to me. He is visually the least interesting, and it seems like a cop-out. Although, at the same time, I get it. I understand why he has man hands, because it opens the whole movie up and the mobility of the puppets entirely. So he can open doorknobs, which I still am not convinced Blade can do. Mm -hmm. But he can do all kinds of stuff with these little manly hands, little baby hands, or whatever the hell... Um, mm-hmm. But he, when he slams the door of that elevator, locking him and Neil inside, it's, it takes a second until you register, oh my, Pinhead's on the inside of the elevator mm-hmm. with him. And then he comes walking towards him quite menacingly. And it's a good testament to the stop motion in this that is done very smoothly. Mm-hmm. So it maintains that menacing look instead of looking um, jittery, or stop motiony. Mm-hmm. He looks like a very scary being. Mm-hmm. coming up on Neil and then we see Blade make his move as well and this is where all the puppets converge now Neil tries to escape by going up the uh, escape latch at the top of the elevator can't seem to pull himself up underneath him the the 
puppet are reaching for him and shit like for his that. dangling feet. Very Darby O'Gill and the little people right there. Yeah. I kind of like this scene. And just as he's about to lose his grip, just to make sure he does, Blade shows up and fucking slices his finger off. Fingers, plural, excuse me. Fingers, and then uses his little knife like you'd scrape off a cutting board and scrape the fingertips into the, the elevator with him, which yeah, is it's hilarious. Funny. And that's where we see the interior of Neil's body. It is just filled with this strange green goo. It's, it's like a blood, but it's just bright green. Mm-hmm. To let you know that whatever's coursing through his veins is this formula that Toulon had. Now... When the puppets drop down, Tunler is fucking drilling into his head. Pinhead is crushing his skull. You know, Blade's there doing his fucking Blade thing. And then all of a sudden, Leech Woman shows up. And she vomits a big leech. And, you know, we were talking earlier about when this movie was going. He said that it took the complete destruction of his body to kill him. But the puppets don't need to do that. And you had said, rightfully so, they are aware of the physiology and what Toulon's formula can do. And so they know the soft spots. But also, I just had a realization as we were talking right now. Leech woman puts a leech into his mouth. And it's the biggest leech we've ever seen her vomit out. It's the king of all fucking leeches. It's so big. It's that nine-inch fucking leech that you it saw is. swimming. And it's the size of his mouth. It definitely fills his mouth. Fills his mouth. It's sucking the formula out of his body. Ah, I see. That and makes so sense. that is, he, like, so yes. I he, just want to see it poop little leech poops because I'm not convinced leeches poop, but maybe this one does. Um, that makes so much sense. I think you've really got it there. Yeah. And they're, by drilling into the neck, it's draining out the neck. So he's yeah. got it coming out several places. He's bleeding out essentially, which yeah. is great. And just to get the rest of it out. I wish Blade was just stabbing him over Just, just over like and repeatedly over stabbing and, and shit yeah. like that. That'd be cool, yeah. But he does stab him. He gets his blade stuck in him. Yeah, yeah. And it pins him down to the floor. It's fucking cool. Yeah. And that's the end of the pretender, the false the puppet pretender. master. Yeah, Gallagher's no more, which Ma- is fine. Master of none. And in the morning, everything's fine. Yeah. Alex goes back to Yale, tucks in his shirt. Tucks in his shirt. Bids... Megan Adu. It's fucked up because uh, is anyone going to explain the fact that you have five dead people in this fucking hotel? What happened to Teresa? She's animated. She's up. She was running around. Don't touch the body. Have a good drive. That's fucked up. Megan. <laughs> I like that you point. I forgot all about Teresa when we were watching this. And like the last time I watched it, I'd forgotten all about her too. I was just like, oh, that was weird. I guess she's still kicking and then forgot she existed. But yeah. She's, I guess, just rambling around the hotel. Yeah. Is this a mortal Weird maid? Springfield cat lady or something? It's fucked up. And now the part that you have issue with, which I agree is weird. Megan's down with this fucking sense of immortality, this formula. Yeah. Because she uses it on Dana's dog. Not even, it doesn't even show necessarily that she's using it on Dana's dog because she's walking around with Leroy, who's still obviously a taxidermy dog. And just with the trick of an eye, she goes up a few flights of stairs and all of a sudden the dog is alive. Mm-hmm. And she's all petting the dog and like, just you and me, Leroy. It's really cute and everything. But it seems that she's down with this. Or she, what, spent the night in Toulon's room learning and, and how to do this? It. 
Like, hey, yeah, immortality's not a bad fucking idea. Or was she in on this all along? Because she certainly doesn't bring that dog to life until Alex is out of the room. It's true. Or maybe, because, here's the thing. If she was in on it, truly, and they weren't trying to just use this as a weird ho-ho-ho surprise at the end of the movie, why would Neil be explaining everything to her the way that she does? So this is what I think... For Alex's benefit. For Alex's benefit. But she's reacting like... She doesn't have that... Ho, 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 ho. Yeah. Uh, I'm also in on this. She doesn't have that moment. So we can probably excuse the fact that she that, that she knows anything about what Neil was trying to do. Does that necessarily mean that Toulon's secret is new information to her? Highly unlikely. Her family owned that hotel. That means that I guarantee you that they were aware of the history of the fucking building. Yeah. And this was something that had been lost for years. Maybe they didn't really know which room Toulon died in. Or even if they did, they searched it. They didn't have the presence of mind to search behind the walls. And so they just assumed that whatever information was there was lost. But this could have been something that Megan had been fascinated with her entire life. Neil, thinking that he was hiding something from her, really was. But she was mortified not for the reasons that he thinks only because he discovered the secret first. Now that he's out of the way, the secret is out, He can, she can now reap the benefits of this information that, for all we know, her parents really wanted, her grandparents really wanted. Yeah, could very well be. Could very well be. Yeah, so it could be that. So she's very comfortable with it and mm-hmm. did spend the evening learning how to concoct and inject mm-hmm. this. Even if there was just fluid. spare formula in a syringe, because that's all it takes, yeah. as the previous movies established, you can just inject it. And then we're good. Now, by the time we get to the sequel, Puppet Master 2, there's a very, very interesting ending. You really need to to finish watching, to finish watching yeah. the last 10 minutes because you think to yourself, uh-huh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, again, like so many other things, that is touched on in that film and never really touched on again. But it's okay. We don't always need it. If it feeds the information that we get from this prep master, I'm all for it. So I'll definitely get into that. And I'm very excited to watch three and four mm-hmm. and five and six. And I even like I even like some of the later ones. Some of the later ones are a little weaker. There are like ten or eleven of these fucking things now, mm-hmm. and. Some of them are, are a little weaker, but I really like Retro Puppet Master, which is one of the later ones, too. It's mm-hmm. quite cool. I like the designs of all the puppets. It's very neat. I'm excited to see 3 and 4 in Axis of Evil. That's what I'm excited yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so yeah, Puppet Master. I can see why you're very into this franchise. Yeah, it's so fun. I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed it very much. I wish I would have schooled myself a long time ago. Well, there's no time like the present. True. So coming up next, we have Dead Silence, because we're going to stay in this uh, dolphin, ventriloquist, creepy being kind of mood. Mm-hmm. And it was a request. Am I right? It was, yeah. Rick Hunter, who you guys might know is the guy that handles the intro and outro music of Panels of Blood. If you guys listen to my other podcast that I have, where I read you horror comics from all years. Um, yeah, and he had posted on the Spotter Pictures website, which is something you guys can do as well. If you guys ever want us to handle a request that you guys want us to talk about if you have a suggestion you know add it to the pile and we've been getting through them very quite regularly now mm-hmm. um after the dead silence we have a request from me 
Because <laughs> that's how it feels in between all these requests. You know, now we have to formally request films. Mm-hmm. Um, the Evil Within, because yeah. I was quite taken with that film. Mm-hmm. And I lent it to you, and you've agreed, thankfully. I've agreed, yeah. It's a strange one. It's definitely a strange one, but it did grace the cover of the one of the recent Rumorg magazines. Yeah, I think it was the last, last month's it issue. It was last month's issue? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so if you're interested in that film and haven't seen it yet... Uh, definitely read some up online because that's what got me very intrigued about this film. And a lot of the indie filmmakers that I know of that were very interested in seeing what a first-time filmmaker could do when given 10 years and almost bottomless coffers to make this out of their own pocket and then die before it ever got released. Mm-hmm. A very fascinating story. Yeah, if you've ever seen any, you've probably seen many images online that are used courtesy of Getty Images, where you, if you're a freelancer, have bought images from Getty Images to use a stock photo. It's the heir to the Getty estate is who had made this film. I forget his first name all of a sudden, but yeah. He had made this film and passed away before it could be released, and it was thankfully released by director friends i suppose or whatever fascinatingly strange film about disability and obsession and maybe revenge to a certain degree and grief very fucking strange alternate reality film mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i'm very excited about that um if you're sick and tired of us talking about movies you can go and listen to me talk about books mm. on my youtube channel um look at typical books all one word and you can find me doing reviews some of the like my older films but i've just done a recent episode for typical books and i have another one coming up on stephen king's kind of like oddball essay nightmares in the sky that's contained within a wonderful coffee table book on gargoyles very, very cool. I just recently did the Jay Anson book 666. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if you're an Amityville horror fan, old 80s horror fan, you can check that out. And on nightface.ca, aside from that and me sharing the show, um, and sometimes I'll share some panels of blood for crying out loud. <laughs> You'll see I'm doing book reviews as well, too. So, yeah, I've been busy little busy little chick. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you've heard Lydia talk for years. Now you get to see her and see what I get to look at every day. Yeah, in motion. In motion. In motion. Just watch that cynical, disinterested expression. Well, if you're sick of all that or don't want to see my ugly mug, you can listen to me talk some fucking more on... By the time this airs, it'll be the most recent episode of Bind Torture Cast where me and Chris are going to cover Death Note. Mm-hmm. Very excited about because it kind of ties in, sure, to my uh, Dead Cells show, the the neglectorino of all mini podcasts. <laughs> but, oh man, I'm so excited to watch Death Note. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah those trailers look really cool Willem Dafoe looks like fantastic perfect casting and someone who what I know about that dude in preparation for a lot of his films really really fucking likes to get into character really eats it up the weirder the character he seems to like it the most okay eat up some apples that's it's true not like it's hard makes <laughs> a more personable person than most people in Death Note uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that because me and Chris have become huge fans of Death Note. I've even recently bought him the book, the Another Note book, which acts as sort of like a, I don't know, it's just sort of an offshoot. Mm-hmm. It's another case mm-hmm. that Al was involved in. Really cool stuff. So we're not experts by any means, but between us, I think we've almost devoured every 
angle of that franchise save the manga i've only read a couple of those mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you've yeah. read them all though yeah yeah i read them all i have them all including the book 13 and um i've seen every episode of the anime and i've even seen uh the movies the 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 movies from japan i've seen those uh on the big screen so it, it's, it's oh, on the pr- big screen that's so cool yeah yeah they were doing special showings of it at, yeah. at anime north and so it was fun you got to see all the differences between the live action films and and what the manga represents and and uh, and and that was uh, one of the first times that uh, the story of uh, an anime really struck me in a way that I wanted to see it in all different forms, and I really could pick out what was really different about it, what I liked about it, and it, it was really a different type of anime for me or manga to get into. I typically really liked shonen series, and even though Death Note would count amongst that because it, I believe it appeared in Shonen Jump. Uh, well, that was... Um, and its target is fits within Shonen, yeah. Exactly. But it was just a slower narrative, a far more gothic story. And because of the, the, the ending, which if you're not really aware of the ending, the overall message of Death Note was something that the, the creator himself had said, I just wanted to make a story that the point was was that you die and nothing happens. So that's it. It's like the, the the nothingness of death will make you realize that what you do in life is hugely important because there is nothing waiting for you afterwards. And I wonder if the new film will embody that. Uh, I think between the three of us, we have seen every single iteration because I've watched the live action soap opera. There was a television series of Death Note as well. So yet another adaptation of the entire mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that the three of us have not seen is the musical. No, we have not. Yeah. Well, what a shame. What a shame. So it'll be really cool. It'll be like, uh, I'll be, I'll probably listen in and I'll really want to be involved in the conversation and I'll just be like, wait, I can't say anything. Right. I'm not. This already happened. I'm listening to ghost talk. <laughs> It'll be like the person yelling at their TV, the equivalent of that. Yeah. yeah. It was like when BTK did uh, the Hellraiser episode. I really wanted to be involved in that conversation. Yeah. 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 I hope that we have that effect on people, that people yell at their fucking TV or sitting on the bus and be like, damn, Lydia, you idiot. Or Wes is so right. Yeah, I'm sure that's what they say. Wes is so right. No, <laughs> I get a lot of shit wrong. But... I, uh, yeah, so you're definitely going to want to check that out. When is that? That is uh, two weeks from now or one week from now? One week from now. It's hitting Netflix. We'll be recording shortly thereafter. This will be dropping about two weeks, so it's mm-hmm. probably just the episode previous to this. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, to, to defer things just um, to me in general, uh, also, I, if you guys uh, manage to see on either our Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, or Twitter, or I think even Instagram, I posted it. Uh, we have a comic book series coming to spotterpictures.net. That is going to be something that I'm making with Chris Begarin, who's been a longtime friend of mine, who's a, a wildly talented artist and somebody who wanted to craft a specific type of story. And just to sort of help him get through it, I decided to write it for him. And so a lot of this is a, it is a heavy collaboration between he and I. And I can't wait for you to see it. And I, I gave you guys uh, released... Um, Concept art of the main character, Teresa. That's going to be the name of the book in general. Which she looks pretty fucking cool. Yeah, she's very, very cool. And I, and I, the response has been really, really great. And there's going to be more character profiles released, uh, letting you guys know who these characters are. And then we'll have a definite release date of the first issue, which will be 
all of yours to enjoy and read free of charge. It'll be on the website. No problem. Love a webcomic. Love a webcomic. I'm really looking forward to more of Chris's work because I just like his artwork that he's donated to our show. And I think that you guys working on a project together is a long time coming. My mentality has always been, listen, I wanted to write for a horror magazine. They say no. Fuck it. I'll write my own blog. That's sort of my attitude behind Pray Light, even though I've had a commercial release and Mm -hmm. a a traditional release of fiction and have sold fiction traditionally. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just kind of go, fuck it. I know how to do this. I'm just going to do it. Yeah. And so I have, and I have comic book stories waiting. Uh, Hopefully I'll have information about another one coming for you guys that'll be in store shelves very, very shortly, uh, which will be nice. But this was one of those instances where he keeps wanting to do this thing. And I said, fuck it. Let's just do it. I have a website. There's... There's things you can attach to make up to, to set up a web comic. Yeah. If we want to do these things, if you're willing to draw it, I'm willing to write it, and we're not asking for any money, let's just do it. You will feel so much better once your story is out there. Mm-hmm. And so that that and, and the thing that I like about comic books, it is such a collaborative thing. It can't function with just a writer, it can't function with just an artist. An inker, a letterer, everyone plays a massively uh, important role in all of that. And and so for us to work together makes absolute sense. And for me to be able to help him out in that way makes me feel really good. And also, I fucking love this. These were characters that we created over 10 years ago in a video game together. It was, <laughs> it was an MMO and we made all of these characters and we made a stupid story for them. And then they get they get put on the shelf and they get forgotten about. And then he says, I really want to do this thing with these characters. So I said, okay, let's try it again. Now we're updating things, so it's not exactly like it's going to be when we were... No, but the same sort of characters. It's the same types of characters, and they're, they all share the same names. They're just... Uh, what we've learned in the incurring years about storytelling and shit like that is going to be added to them. So I'm really excited about that. And lastly, I'll mention... If you guys are interested, Panels of Blood has started our Archie Palooza, which is... Uh, I'm very interested in this. Which is basically, I'm going to be reading uh, from the Archie Horror imprint that was released by Archie Comics a few years ago. First up is Afterlife with Archie. I'm going to be doing the first uh, complete volume of the trade. And then immediately after, there's going to be no buffer in between of, uh, of an EC horror comic. There's just going right into the chilling adventures of Sabrina, which is the horror take on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Which I've never read. I've read the Afterlife with Archie, and I remember when it was first launched. It's like you almost pinch yourself mm-hmm. and think, "Are they kidding? Will this be a one-off like Marvel mm-hmm. Zombies? Will this be mm-hmm. just one, like, not even a trade?" I really mm-hmm. didn't think it was going to last that long. I thought it might be two, like Zomkies, <laughs> that turned into two issues now. But I mean, at first, Zomkies was just a one-off. It wasn't mm-hmm. intended. He wasn't going to do another one. That's really what I thought it was. If it was going to actually happen at all, mm-hmm. I thought it might have been a prank. Mm-hmm. Like and Hobo with a shotgun. Yeah, Hobo with a shotgun. Yeah. First things are trailers, then then they're a whole thing. Uh, in the first episode, which is episode nineteen, I believe it's out now. You can listen to. Uh, I talk about um, the history of Archie Comics. Very brief history. It's almost seventy five years now, and how this happened. How did the Archies become a horror imprint? What changed within the company and why they decided to make these decisions. So all that's in the first uh, episode. How goddamn brutal that that little series is too. I mean, if you're a fan of the Walking Dead comics, Mm -hmm. you'll almost get that same sort of brutality Mm -hmm, from this. mm -hmm, I'm not even kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So that's amazing. 
Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, we were busy the past couple weeks. So this is what happens when we go bi-weekly. So apologies for people who do look for us weekly and continue to um, miss us in between times. But we do all kinds of other fucking shit, that's for sure. That's true. And when we retire and rest on our laurels, we'll go back to weekly. <laughs> Promise. <laughs> that's the idea of us resting. We'll just do a weekly podcast and that's it. Yeah, that's my retirement. That and like scrubbing my non-functional fireplace. <laughs> my giant funeral home type home i'm west knight and i'm typical lydia and you've been listening to dead air